Hello everybody, welcome to episode 24 of Herpetological Highlights, the bi-weekly herpetological podcast about all things reptiles and amphibian. My name's Tom Major and joining me as always is my co-host Ben Marshall. And mm. this week, this bi-week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different than what we normally do. Um, for some reason we decided it would be a good idea not to pick out specific things to read about and then discuss. Instead, we've kind of just been keeping our ears to the ground for two weeks and um, to be honest it's probably resulted in me doing a lot less reading, uh, but just kind of keeping an eye out for things which are coming out and then in the hopes of talking about a kind of, um, well I guess the herpetological highlights of the last two weeks. Yes, and sort of things that wouldn't, or at least I went for things that wouldn't fit in an episode very well. Like they're either transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary or just a little bit less specific that we'd have a hard time squashing into a corner and talking about specifically. That was a good idea. I just picked stuff that I thought was really cool. (laughs) Well, that's all right as well. (laughs) I've just gone for like the most exciting things which have happened. (laughs) Well, there we go. It will be a good balance of because a couple of mine are quite heavy, okay, and quite serious. Am I going to get bored? You'll you'll get bored if um, <laughs> you're weird and don't see the value in what I'm saying. Oh, I see. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. All right. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Enough of that. Let's talk about the first thing we're going to talk about. We don't really have a good segue because we don't have like names for the areas. When are we going to put the theme music in? Oh, you're editing, that's your problem. You're going to have to double-use tracks and all sorts, aren't you? Oh, God. Yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe I'll just download loads of crazy music and put it on, like, (laughs) robot-style. Just randomly, throughout the episode. (laughs) Um, No rhyme or reason. So, yeah, so I think... I know this. at least one thing that's happened in the last few weeks uh, that we've both definitely read about is this... Kind of, um, I guess it's like a, a diss paper. If this was hip hop instead of science, this would be a diss paper where uh, a load of taxonomic authors have come out with a paper in PLOS Biology to say that they disagree with a Nature article which was published a few weeks ago. Yeah, I don't know if I would use the term diss paper because I felt like this one was quite positive and like more, more I don't know relatively optimistic about things yeah i mean what we're talking about here is a a thompson et al paper and i'm saying et al because there are like hundreds of authors on this thing um so taxonomy based on science is necessary for global conservation right we're talking about that one indeed we are and the paper which they are rebutting dissing if you will is garnet and christidis 2017 taxonomy anarchy hampers conservation okay so it was published last year not this year but nevertheless it's very new yeah so what what did they say what did the 2017 paper say uh so basically the whole point of the 2017 one uh well before i get into that uh for those that don't know taxonomists are people that study the relationships between animals everyone probably knew that they kind of study the organization of life how everything's related to each other and then they name things based on nomenclature uh which is the kind of universal naming system for all life um it's also a legal framework so it's it's managed by a couple of comp well they're not companies are they? they're organizations the international committee for zoological nomenclature aka the iczn and the you know the international union of biological sciences iubs anyway boring stuff out of the way and um <laughs> essentially yeah garnet and christidis put this comment piece in nature and they said that the naming of species worldwide is in turmoil because there are no defined rules. Um, and depending on the strategy of naming that you use, either more or less species could be recognised, which could therefore have a big impact on the amount of converse- conservation funding which different animals receive. So mm. um, what they wanted was to make this International Union of Biological Sciences the final decision makers in any new species um, I think they're mostly talking about vertebrates because there is one already for viruses, which aren't obviously like, you know, they're different. But, you know, I don't know how far they wanted to go into invertebrates. Um, But yeah, the example that they use is that, um, well, an example of why the naming system currently is bad is that 
splitting species more finely can lead to more difficult conservation. So at the moment, hunters which want to kill spiral horned antelopes, they do this thing called the spiral horned grand slam, where they have to kill nine types of antelope to uh, get the sort of full score, you know, the full spread of all the different spiral and antelopes. But recent taxonomical developments have meant that those nine species are now 25. Um, and so if those same hunters wanted to get all the species, they'd have to kill 25 different species, which actually represent more fragile biological units. Um, which Well, that's a really weird niche example. It is. It is. I didn't know about that at all. Yeah, they they wrote that in their comment piece, which, I mean, yeah, okay, that's true. But, like, you can't just go around not naming animals their proper names for fear that someone might kill them. People will kill them anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, I, yeah. I, and also the other thing about that particular comment was that there wasn't really any evidence. There was just that, like, there's no actual, like, experiential evidence. And, I mean, fair play, conservation, you can't always wait for experiential evidence. you kind of got to have ideas, but... Nevertheless, I mean, it's pretty far-fetched. Um, yeah, so, I mean, do you want to talk about the taxonomist's kind of rebuttal argument? Yeah, well, I think one of the one of the ones that sort of got me was the last thing a sort of scientific endeavour needs, like taxonomy that's constantly changing, and there's so much work that needs to be done, is some sort of big, slow governmental body, or, sorry, non-governmental body, re-evaluating everybody's work, that's already gone through peer review. Like, that's the whole point of peer review, isn't it? Is that you're having your stuff reviewed by other other experts in the field. Yes. Imp- yeah. Impartially, you'd hope. And that are also keeping up with the field. And then to add something on top of that as well. I mean, peer review is already horribly slow. But it's sort of necessary. Like that was the biggest thing for me. It was, it was sort of time, the time and money to do this would be nuts, and that effort going into actual conservation might be better served. That's the way I saw it. Anyway, that was what I thought was the most convincing point. Was yeah, me too. Good me luck too. trying to organise this. It's already hard to organise. Yeah, another layer. Yeah. The taxonomists themselves, I mean, you know, they're not speaking for every taxonomist, obviously, but these are a lot of taxonomists who are big in the field. I can't remember how many authors it was. Was it like 80 or something? I'm not sure. Um, I'll have a look. And one of the things they were saying was, you know, there's 18,000 species getting named every year. And for them to have to send it off to an additional body, like you're saying, would be really expensive, really impractical. And um, actually, the, the main problems with their field of taxonomy is that there's not enough support for the discipline. Uh, they don't get enough funding and there's not enough training opportunities for new taxonomists coming in. It's kind of like, in some ways, taxonomists are a dying breed. It's not glamorous. Um, a lot of taxonomic experts in museums and what have you are getting older, they're retiring and they're not necessarily being replaced. Um, mm. So you're losing, you know, there's there's a lot of people going to retire and there's not the young people coming up through the ranks to replace them. So that knowledge is therefore being lost. Um, which is obviously really sad, and I guess that just represents, I suppose, you know, the this, this sort of scientific funding scenario in America, at least as I perceive it, is sort of de- declining, um, which could be a major cause of this. Um, but they, yeah, I mean, I called it a dis paper. Really, it wasn't a dis paper, but um, yeah, they kind of both sides of the debate agree that biodiversity conservation does have to have robust taxonomic research, um, and lack of it is impacting conservation. But um, unlike the nature comment piece, the taxonomist rebuttal kind of don't agree that external governance. No, the the whole sort of sorry, one hundred and seventy two different institutions the authors are from. So that oh, wow. gives you an idea of how many people are on this this paper agreeing. Yeah. Um, but the whole point is that you don't want an an additional mechanism slowing things down when a lot of the taxonomy stuff is actually super key to conservation and promotes better conservation i would say in some some scenarios certainly because you think think back to what do we do episode three where we were talking about boas and working out whether different populations were interrelated or not or something along those lines and and getting into the separation of distinct species or subpopulations 
because this is the other thing that I don't think really matters is the naming aspect of it because names name, names can come and go but what you do need to know is how interrelated things are regardless of whether it's a species or not because if they can't interbreed or they can interbreed or they are separated or not that will change how you do your conservation yeah yeah and if you don't have the most accurate uh representation of that then you're not doing the job as well as you could yeah right the common and if you're argument... just for the sake of clarity and uh you know a, a, an agreed upon name you choose to ignore that two subpopulations could be something else or not that's that's a problem right mm. yeah for sure and i think the other common argument against this is like why are you wasting your time naming everything we should just be sort of blanket protecting swathes of area but um you know, and spending our money and time and resources doing that, but unfortunately, that's that's not going to be possible. Even the most optimistic conservationists hope to only protect half of Earth, and uh, yeah, you you really can't. You need to identify where the sort of spots are that need the most help, and the biological yeah. units that need preserving, and then after that, the ways in which it's possible to do that, uh, and kind of go alongside the inevitability of human expansion. So, yeah. The one thing yeah. I did have trouble with, which kind of made me feel a bit sad, was the fact that the original one was published in Nature, which is, as far as I could tell, an open source publication. Uh, it's a Nature comment piece, which probably gets like a lot of readership. And then the rebuttal was published in PLOS Biology, wasn't it? Yeah. Which, yeah, PLOS Biology. Which probably has like 100 times less readership than the Nature article. Which is kind of a bit of a uh, shortfall of scientific publishing. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of authors. They probably shared it quite widely. I saw it on Facebook. Um, yeah, I think it'll get out there. I mean, I, I I don't think that that's a particular worry because then they go on to talk about these sort of uh, how uh, more fluid implementations of taxonomy are actually being used, and things things like CITES using. Yeah. You know, having these references and are constantly changing idea of which species are which species integrated into what they're doing. So, really, the the information is getting to the right place already. If it's getting to things like CITES, right? Yeah. You know, people who are making these decisions will be able to access this stuff and decide on whether it needs to happen or not. Because certainly, it's not going to be a case of the original piece eliciting some sort of grand body of taxonomy without mm. a lot of taxonomists agreeing. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, you know, <laughs> this is a lot of people, and a lot of them are very prominent, very big names. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. So, I think, you know, things like this have happened before, like the um, the big paper against Hoser, re- sort of relatively recently, saying that his taxonomy was just, like, you know, a shambles, which, of course, it is. Um, and it does carry a lot of clout when this many people actually collaborate, you know, especially in yeah. disparate places. 87 institutions is a hell of a lot. Is that what you said, 87? No, I said 172. 172. Well, I had 87 in my head for some reason. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's enough on that. That I, I think it's, you know, I think it's a good, a good point. And, you know, fair play to um, the nature comment. You know, it's good to kind of elicit these discussions um, yeah well it is absolutely there's no point just going about business as you've always gone about business people need to throw up these ideas and say hey would it be better to formalize it or have it arbitrated i guess mm, yeah because apparently it did work for viruses they say in their nature paper so you know i mean yeah you know so to some extent perhaps you know taxonomists maybe are just you know slightly f- fearful of any change which is understandable but yeah i don't know that the systems yeah anyway that's enough that's enough let's talk about something else that's cool though uh um, you, what else have you got what have i got i have something that came out what was it yesterday day before yesterday yesterday hot off the press yeah we have a Oh, how do you pronounce that name? That's the difficult one. Akakaya Bennett Brooks Grace Heath Hedges Hilton Taylor Hoffman Keith Long et al. Oh, there was more than I thought. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, 2018, hot off the press, really. And this is a paper called Quantifying Species Recovery and Conservation Success to Develop an IUCN Green List of Species. 
So ah, you know what this. the red list is, right? Yeah, I saw this on Facebook. I actually didn't get around to clicking on it, so I'd be interested to hear mm. your take on it. This is cool. This I I think this is a wicked idea. I like this a lot. So is this towards like a traffic light system for conservation where you get like a red light, you're bad, or you get a green light, you know, that's a success. And then an amber light is like, your research is mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> like you, so, are a, you are a fair to middling scientist. <laughs> <laughs> mediocre. <laughs> Um, no, so Red List is focused on preventing extinctions, right? Correct. And the flip side of that would be promoting recoveries. So the Green List is a framework being developed to quantify how recovered a species is and the impact that conservation efforts are having on that species. Because right now you have a system with the Red List where Mm. here is X species and it's endangered and people put loads of effort to conserve it and then it improves and goes to vulnerable or friend or whatever it is its status gets less severe the incentive there is then suddenly to remove funding from that species right because it's oh it's less at risk don't need to worry but what that fails to take into account is how much of that conservation money and funding and effort is keeping that species in that better category. If you remove it, it could very well drop back down. So the green list is an idea of, number one, getting an idea of how what a fully recovered species would look like. Because then you know how far you are from the end goal, the absolute possible best case scenario. But also providing some sort of a better incentive to keep conservation funding in species that are reliant on that conservation funding. If you see what I mean. Right. Okay, yeah. So basically they're, they're quantifying this recovery as making sure the species is viable. So we're talking about long-term survivability. So a large, stable, healthy population, genetically sound, um and all sort of resilient to whatever pressures it's going to be facing. So some level of adaptability. So viable. Okay, makes sense. The second one is a functionality. So it's working in its ecosystem in the way it should be. So there are enough uh, individuals and populations and connectedness between populations that they're fulfilling functions that they should be fulfilling in that ecosystem. And then the third one is a representation, which is basically the species exists everywhere that it should across its entire range. So it's not like cornered off in one little cubby, but it's been extirpated from most of its range. Those and that would be requirements are going hitting... to be quite hard to fulfil, aren't they? Yeah, but that's the whole that's the whole point. You've got this this big, relatively lofty, but uh, objective and realistic because it will be be you know it is going to be based on uh studies that have been done so it's not just willy-nilly this would be nice if this species was from here to here and just because it's ambitious doesn't undermine it existing right yeah no of course not no so you've got those three that make your sort of recovery goal and hopefully hopefully that's that's going to be more motivating than this this prevention yeah definitely focused negative saving conservation yeah i mean you only yeah. have to look at human being i mean you know we love a good reward as humans so that'd be way more fun to work towards than just hooray our species is now threatened not critically endangered which actually does sound quite good but nevertheless it does and and there is one thing that sort of kept coming up in the paper was there is an incentive to downplay conservation successes because of that fear of losing funding and stuff it doesn't you're not rewarded for conservation successes very <laughs> you lose frequently, your job you have to move out <laughs> but have some sort of framework which actually says look this is the sort of difference between where this species would be with funding and without funding as in without conservation efforts that's a very sort of direct way of saying yeah we better keep doing this if we want this species and people start 
getting a bit more credit for <laughs> conservation successes as opposed to constantly focusing on the next endangered species. So have they greenlisted any species yet? Well, the only one that they, they have a case study, which I skipped over largely because it's about the Saiga, Saiga, oh, Saiga, the weird antelope with the The one that looks nostrils. like something out of Star Wars, the, the yeah, 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 trunk yeah. face. That's their case study. Saiga? The, yeah, the, the move now is to try and do it on a whole bunch of species and make sure that the framework works properly cool. so it can be applicable to everything and yeah i mean i think it's fantastic i think it's a fantastic idea to give it a go see how it works i'd love to see it work i think the toughest thing is some of the baseline um result sort of baseline metrics that they need like how how far could this species have ranged without us causing problems and stuff yeah to me is the hardest bit because that's dealing with the counterfactual scenarios and that i can understand that being very difficult but at the same time why not like really why not aim aim high have optimistic goals for species recovery and it gives something people to aim for and i think there's a real issue with certainly oceans and things, that people forget what the oceans were like beforehand. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sure. shifting baseline syndrome, that's a big issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, I like that. Greenlisting. Well, I hope yeah. to see some species which we've talked about being in trouble getting greenlisted, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be, the idea is it's going to be integrated in with the red list to give a, I think they were saying give a unified like conservation status for an animal. But I wonder if it's best to have both side by side. Like, this mm. is how close it is to being doomed. This is how close it is to being uh, fully recovered with a side order of this is the difference con- the current conservation effort is making. Mm. Did you see this thing about... Uh... The African rock python. Well, the southern African python. By Alexander. Yeah, did you catch up with yeah, this? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> How awesome was that? <laughs> yeah, maternal care of neonates in the South African, southern African python. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't Very believe neat. it. It's such a cool paper. And um, still in press, so it hasn't even come out in print. It's not on paper yet. It's only on the ether of the internet, which is very exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this this guy, um, Alexander, is a professor from uh, Wits University in Southern Africa, South Africa. Um, he actually works with Xavier Glaudas, who did all the Puff Adder stuff that we've talked mm. about on the podcast before. Um, well, Xavier was one of his postdocs, I believe. And, um, yeah, this paper's awesome. So these giant pythons, Southern African rock python, which are python natalensis, um, essentially they've had a load of radio transmitters inside them they've been keeping tabs on what they do as they well in general really but they've managed to track a lot of gravid females and see the results of their um, giving birth and what they found out is loads of cool stuff so the first thing which I was impressed with was that they have facultative melanism so when they're gravid yes. and they're basking regularly to kind of well they leave the egg mass in a in a burrow they make these burrows in um, they make these nests in like they're like anteater burrows aren't they um or some other uh, yes it was, go in it was aardvark slash warthog slash porcupine burrow systems uh, yeah I mean, was seven out of eight of the nest sites that they uh were looking at yeah the trifecta of burrowers well pretty i mean burrowing owls gophers they're pretty good what are those there's gopher tortoises they're pretty important ecosystem engineers right there are they called gopher tortoises because they make holes like gophers yeah, I think so. Oh, I hate that. God, that's so lame. I've never clocked well, that before. Would it be better if they ate gophers? Yeah, it'd be acceptable just, then. Just chowed down, chased them down in packs of tortoises. No, they'd have to through ambush the swamps, them. jumping down from trees, <laughs> shooting webs. The tortoise uses its shell as a weapon. It's actually like a, <laughs> a, a club. It's like a well, they they like they line up in a line, and one runs really fast and punches the others and shoots the one <laughs> off into off into the gopher, <laughs> knocks them right out. Amazing. 
Incredible we didn't see that behaviour until the 21st century. Yeah, well, it's camera traps, isn't it? The power of camera traps. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they didn't actually analyse the uh, facultative melanism, but, um, you know, well, I say they, he, but uh, he was confident that they looked black. And I mean, they do. In the photos, they're, they, you know, they're a different yeah, colour. Yeah, it's pretty clear. Dark. Yeah. And, and what they do is they, they lay the egg mass in one of these burrows, and then every morning or afternoon, they come out, bask in the sun, using their new black colour. So they turn black just for the occasion. They turn black for the period that they are looking after the eggs. And then they come back in, wrap around the eggs, warm them up, and um, that's how they incubate the eggs. Because some pythons, uh, carpet pythons, Morelia spilota, are a good example. They do this thing called thermogenesis, which is mm. literally just heat generation. And they do this by kind of shivering. Um, you think of, think of reptiles as kind of... Um, these exothermic creatures that don't produce their own heat well in some instances they actually can and this is one um which is quite cool but interestingly these big old rock pythons weren't doing this they were actually just basking repeatedly um and yeah after the eggs hatched the really cool stuff happened um, yeah the female stayed with them for an average of two weeks which yeah. i mean is unheard of for a snake which lays eggs you know they guard the eggs and then once they hatch they go but they stayed with them for two weeks until the snakes had shed their skin so you know you were talking like 30 or 40 sometimes little tiny baby rock pythons um, oh they're adorable oh it's so the, cute the article has some great supplementary material of videos little videos of the snakes out and about well not out and about but in and about there is a fantastic one I think it's video 4 S4 you've got this tiny little python just yawning stretching I don't know the snakes really yawn whatever it's stretching it's stretching its mouth and all the others are sitting around it sitting on the eggs or what <laughs> remains of the eggs it's fantastic it's so, so cool it's crazy and then yeah she stayed with them for two weeks and presumably in that time the juveniles are kind of digesting your yolk sacs and just like getting used to the idea of being snakes and then um, <laughs> yeah they all bask there's a really nice photo, like you say. There's another one of them all out on the surface, just this like huge morass of like writhing snakes, which is super cool. Yeah. Like, if you hated snakes, you'd probably fall over dead with a heart attack. But I like baby snakes. I think they look super cute. <laughs> they are cute. Yeah, and um, yeah, so they all come out to bask, and so does the female sometimes, and then they all go back at night to sleep in the burrow, and the female wraps around them again, which is really nice. And they do that, like I say, average two weeks, sometimes as little as five days, but. Um, Alexander suggested that maybe he'd spooked them. Um, but yeah, up, up it's to It's cool. Weeks. Really it's cool. It's very cool. And yeah. it starts the slow and steady progress of undermining these horrible myths of uncaring reptile cold-blooded things, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it does. And it's um, so. yeah the first unambiguous report of maternal care of neonates in an egg-laying snake. And the first hmm. to implicate a colour change as a reproductive strategy in snakes. Uh, crazy that that's the first study because I know that like hobbyists have been aware of multiple snakes doing that for, for ages, but obviously no one's written anything up on it. Yeah, man. Get that stuff out there. Mm. It's Because people aren't... It's, it's something that's lacking in, in university education at some universities. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think most people who keep and breed snakes maybe haven't gone and studied biology. Well, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. There's, there is that mismatch, isn't there, between scientific literature and actually having everybody be able to engage with it. Oh, yeah, massively, yeah. Hence the podcast, mate. <laughs> well, yeah, a little bit, isn't it? But that doesn't help with getting other people to... to write it and be a part of it as much I guess yeah I, I don't know how you'd solve that I think you'd need more scientists to be honest yeah well anyway <laughs> that's, probably, to, like, that's I'm, probably I'm getting way off the point beyond our scope man <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so um, what else have we got what else have we got that's cool well we got a cool paper from Dahlia uh, notes on the distribution and natural history of king cobras from Kulmon Hills Uttarakhand, Ut- India in Herp Notes Sorry, what species this was neat. is this? This is King Cobras What, those generic lapids? Yeah, the largest venomous snake the longest venomous snake in the world <laughs> Lamest venomous snake in the world Yeah <laughs> Eat other snakes for breakfast um, 
Yeah, they're pretty cool, I suppose. Um, so what was neat fun. about this? Um, this is the highest ever recorded nesting of King Cobras. Wow, how uh, high? Like 2,000 metres up. Wow. Highest record at 200... 200... 200... 2,303 metres. That's 200 metres higher than ever seen before. Um, and this what's sort of mind-blowing for me with this is we're dealing with a place that has winter temperatures of like 5 degrees with snow and like near-freezing conditions. And we have King Cobras bumming around the place. That's awesome. So was their nesting any different? Uh, I mean, it's similar in the great sort of generalness where they're building this nest. We're talking about maternal stuff. Female kings look after their eggs in a slightly different way, building a nest for them. Um, the only snake that do, as far as we know. Yeah, which is pretty cool. I mean, the ones from the pictures look bigger than anything I've seen before. Um, but I don't think that they didn't have any measurements in, I don't think. But what is neat is it's the first time it's been properly documented beyond anecdotal evidence that they've used pine needles to make their nests, which hasn't been seen before. Mm. Um, and also it seems to be the first evidence of twinning with two eggs coming out of one egg. Two eggs out of one egg, two for one big egg. Two snakes out of one egg. <laughs> two for the one egg, there's big an... egg! <laughs> there's another egg. <laughs> the Russian doll of eggs. Yeah. Oh my god, it's two eggs! <laughs> there's a snake in each egg. No, it's really cool. So, two, yeah, two snakes, one egg, was yeah, what I was awesome. trying to say. Cool, cool. Oh, that's and wicked. What a fun little paper. Possibly uh, nest sanitation by the female that separated off unfertilized eggs from the fertilized eggs. Is that the first report of that? Um, Surely not. In what? In snakes in general or king cobras? I don't know. I, I just thought I thought you were following. I, I thought you were following on from the first report of using pine needles to the first report of twins to the first report of them separating off eggs. But I mean, mm, I'm not sure about the nest sanitation thing. I would presume that it's going to be the first observation of it in kings. Yeah, oh, I would assume so. Um, no, I'm not as well versed as you are on king cobras, but... I mean, anyway. I haven't... I, I don't remember reading about it before. Okay, cool. But no the point is, that's a, that appears to be what has happened. You know, it wasn't actually seen happen, but when you turn up to a nest and there's there's hatched eggs there and there's non-hatched, non-fertilised eggs over there, it, you know... Yeah, Captive, <laughs> a lot of captive snakes seem to do that too. So that stands to reason that king cobras would. I mean, yeah. they look different. If you've got that kind of a marinasal sense, presumably they're going to have some slightly different smell to them. Yeah, I, I think it's wicked. I, it was just... The coolest bit for me was the additional flexibility in nesting sites, I feel. It was it were some in private orchards and things. So we've got pine needles, private orchards, more flexibility in nesting in co- king cobras and a greater flexibility in potentially what climates they can handle. Uh, that's that's all a good sign, I feel. It's no surprise to me, though. These, those things have got a brain in that head. They do. On the topic of cool snake behaviours, did you see the one about, it was by Bruce Jane and colleagues in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society just recently. Um, this came out, well, it's this year. Um, I'm not sure how new it is. The copy I've got is in press, but yeah. So um, it's really cool. It's a paper about crab-eating snakes. Crab-eating snakes? Yeah, so... They live on the beach? Yeah, they live on the beach. What uh, type of snake is this? They're crab-eating snakes. They have barbecues and eat crabs. <laughs> they are, So there's three types in this paper. The first was Fordonia leucobalia. They also had Gerarda prevostiana and Cantoria violacea. So these are all kind of... Um, they're all homolopsid snakes. So they're from the family Homolopsidae, which is kind of Indo-Australian water snakes. They're also known as mud snakes because... They love wallowing about in the mud, being a bit gross, smelling a bit weird. 
Um, <laughs> Having strange faces. Yeah, they've got really odd faces. Googly they, eyes. Yeah, generally these like really short, blunt heads with these like big eyes. They kind of look like quizzical, like you know, apologetic yeah. faces. Um, <laughs> apologetic snake. <laughs> yeah, they've got twenty-eight. There's twenty-eight genera and fifty species. Homolopsids recently underwent that's a just big what revision. We yeah. Um, and yeah, they're all mildly venomous. And this paper was really cool. Um, essentially, what they did was they were looking at these three species of crab-eating snake. Uh, one of them, or two of them, also eat shrimp. And these snakes are famous, particularly previously Fordonia leucobalia, uh, which is known as the crab-eating snake, because they're one of the only snakes, along with Indotyphlops, Indotyphlops brahminus, the brahmini blind snake, that don't eat their prey whole. Um, so what they do is they... They catch these crabs and then they tear their legs off, eat the legs and then eat the body. What about slug-eating snakes? Ah, and slug-eating snakes, yeah, the old Piraeus, they do it. And so, yeah. so do the um, South American ones, right? They suck the egg out, they suck the snail out of the shell. Yeah, because they've got that asymmetric jaw thing going on that rotates them around, right? Yeah, it's like impossibly, it's confusing to watch. Yeah, You're like, it's How basically is that? magic. Yeah, the mechanics of it are like way beyond my comprehension. Even when I watch <laughs> it happen, I'm like, what? How did it get, did it suck it out? What? Yeah, that's a cool video though. Piraeus, is it? Can't remember. Mm, can't remember. It's like Piraeus Margarita Pizza, the scientific name of that one. There's a video up. Piraeus Margarita Pizza. Yeah. The, uh, that's not going to do. It's like Margarita to... Fera or something. I can't think now. Can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Just look up Piraeus. Uh, eating a snail and you'll find the video um but yeah anyway back to these crab eating snakes the one which i was most taken with was fordonia leucobalia and it's kind of a solid dirty brown color it doesn't look like much like i said small head um but it has this really cool behavior not only does it eat crabs by pulling their legs off uh, but it also strikes with its mouth shut so it basically headbutts the crab and when it feels that it's contacted the crab it like pins it to the floor and then once it's pinned it to the floor, it then squashes it with a coil. And then once it's got its body weight on the crab, it starts to pick the legs off with its mouth. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's pretty sinister. That's crazy. Really. Yeah, it must be awful to be a crab. And um, sometimes they pull the legs off, sometimes they don't. I think it depends on whether or not, well, how big the crab is. And then sometimes um, some of these other species, they also uh, eat crabs which have just recently molted because they're softer. Um, but... When these, uh, when these scientists were dissecting this crab-eating snake, uh, they found that it had a really, really unusually thick stomach, like thicker than the others, to a point where it was actually like difficult to dissect its stomach. And they think it's an adaptation to stop crabs that have been swallowed alive from busting S- their way out. Snapping out with their little snappers. Yeah, it's horrible to think <laughs> of being a crab and being like, ah, this is no problem. I've got myself out of binds like this with these handy pincers, but then... <laughs> You know. Squid, not a problem. I'll go yeah. right through him. <laughs> <laughs> Slice and dice. Yeah, but not in this case, Mr. Crab. Unlucky, you're oh. stuck in there forever. Digestive enzymes are coming for you. Um, yeah. That's crazy, no man. No good. But, um, yeah, so some other interesting things that came out of this paper. Uh, the authors decided that it was very unlikely, although these snakes are quite, well, they're sort of mildly venomous, um, probably not. To humans unless you're unlucky enough to be allergic but they chew the crabs their prey handling time which is like scientific speak for chewing slash mashing around before you eat slash sort of arranging the right way around before you swallow it because obviously snakes are at a disadvantage in that respect despite the fact they do that for a long time the, the crabs seem to have virtually sort of no ill effects of venom um, so the venom is not really acting on the crabs and mm. One thing, sort of actually the main finding of this paper was that um, these three species had very different um, gapes. So there was one which had the big gape, which was the Fordonia leucobalia, while the other two, which is the Garada and the Cantoria, they eat only freshly molted crabs. Um, so their gape size, how, how wide they could open their jaws, was significantly smaller. So... Um, what that means is that they've kind of got this behavioural adaptation to only eat crabs that are soft, having just molted their shells. And that means that their head needs to be much less large. Um, so that's just quite a cool oh, little sort that's of... That's like a cool like niche partitioning. Or yeah. Partitioning of prey between these three species when they're all dealing with essentially the same prey. 
Yeah, I'm not 100% sure how much they overlap, but it seems they were all collected at the same time, so it's reasonable to expect that that is a thing. Which yeah, is I really, don't, don't really think. interesting in terms of like evolutionarily, like you say, splitting niches and kind of all getting along nicely together and apportioning the crabs. Um, yeah. And I mean, the paper was awesome. If you get a chance to look at it, like really cool diagrams, like properly old school cartoon style drawings, very akin to some of your work, actually, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> Um, and yeah like it was just really great and the um, something else I learned which I was really happy about was um, the a crab's pincer the, the scientific name for a crab's pincer is a a kelliped a kelliped yeah <laughs> that's like the crab's nice. claw with the leg attached is called a kelliped kelliped yeah oh. so the, the slug snake you were talking about uh, Paris carinatus Carinatus Car- is the yellow one. Wasn't that not what you're talking about? Because I got a well, video here of oh. killed slug snake eats snail. Maybe that's I'm... what it is of. Ah, uh, okay. Let's see him. The other option is. Oh, there's Margarita Forest. Yeah. Oh. Let's... I don't have. I don't think there's a video of it eating a snail though, so I must have invented that. <laughs> okay. Well, there is a video there, and. Ah, uh, yeah, you're quite there's right. One that I've seen before. Yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. it's alright <laughs> oh yeah yeah no that's the one I'm I'm thinking of there's yeah. also one of one of the South American ones eating a, or Central America I'm not sure eating a slug um, we'll put them in the put them in the show notes yeah then people can go watch tiny tiny African pythons coming out of the egg or, or <laughs> being next to an egg and yawning and a snail being brutally and mercilessly sucked out of its little home yeah, I can't find the other one. I think it was on Facebook, so maybe it hasn't made it to the wider internet. Oh, well. Anyway, yeah. Snakes was... eat crabs. What is going on? Is there anything they won't eat? No. Did you? We did it on the podcast, didn't we? There was that snake that was eating rice. <laughs> did we talk about what? the podcast? There was, there was rice a... eating? No. It was, it was a snake... Oh man, I'm not going to be able to find it now. But there was a note the about this. Snake. Basically, this little filth bag of a snake was just living in, uh, like, underneath the sink at a university. In, uh, I mean, eating rice. I'm not sure where. I want to say maybe Malaysia. And it was basically just like eating chicken bones. And then one day it was like in the sink, and someone had like poured away a load of rice, and it was just like going around scooping up all this rice. <laughs> Incredible. It must have got indigestion. Surely that's not good for a snake. Yeah, no, I mean... Especially yeah. if it was raw rice, it would swell up. Well, no, that's the thing. It was cooked. It was cooked. Oh, well. um, at the very least. <laughs> yeah, thankfully. I mean, disgusting otherwise. Yeah, I can't find this video of a slug snake eating the, the other one. Oh, there's loads of videos, actually. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, we got one. So... You want to hear about something that hasn't even been printed yet? Yeah. A preprint. Potentially a very, very important preprint. Um, by Fraser Parker, Nakagawa, Barnett and Fiddler. 2018. As in, it's still being written as a preprint, so I don't even know the year. Where did you get it from? Um, I posted it on... Twitter, I believe. And oh, is it one of the these? Link and is it, it's is a it... preprint. It's a, it's one of these published, you know, not published, not peer reviewed, but published yes. out there. You know, kind of like called... peer reviewed by the masses. Yeah, questionable research practices in the ecology and evolution. Uh oh. Yeah, it sounds boring, doesn't it? It does sound boring, but it also yeah. sounds like maybe it's going to call into question some things that we've done. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's a real question. Have you been involved in questionable research practices? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm sure you you know, and I'm sure much of the audience have heard of the sort of replication uh, crisis that is gripping to- uh, uh, disciplines such as psychology and the thing and the likes. Because there have been, over the years, some questionable research practices, which has led us down this garden path where when people have come back to retest results and repeat studies, things haven't quite worked out the way they should have. And, you know, the, the things they're discussing here aren't out-and-out 
Um, what's the right word? I mean, it's question. Yeah, questionable research practices. It's not like someone fabricating results, but they are things that will cause problems in the long run. Basically, practices that will increase the chances of false positives, i.e., seeing something, a correlation being significant when really it's not. A type two error. Is that type two error? I can't remember. I just. I, I always forget the types because it's just a label for a thing that I know, so it it, it doesn't. Yeah, a type I know, two. I, error. I never feel like I'm going up to someone saying, "Oh, that's a type one error." And yeah. more like, hmm, I don't think that's right being like that. I think that's a bit it's a bit funny. <laughs> yeah, no, I was right. A type two error is uh Oh, it's a false negative. Oh no, so a type there one error. Type, is a type false one positive. error. Type one. Oh, I see I thought it was being so clever. Anyway, carry on. So you may be asking, what is a questionable research practice? Well, that was my next question. What is a questionable research practice? A questionable research practice, or QRP for short. Oh, <laughs> I, d- I don't know. I can't remember if they used QRP in the yeah, thing, but did. I've got it in they my notes. <laughs> QRP. So uh, give me an example of a QRP. Um, cherry picking. So that would be uh, <laughs> failing really? to report report uh, conditions or dependent variables that fail to reach statistical significance. So basically throwing out all the stuff that didn't really make a difference, but not reporting it. Mm-hmm. Everyone does that, surely. Well... I'd see something like that is perhaps one of the less egregious ones. But at the same time, it it's not good for re- reproducing studies because it's, it's, it's something that you've tested, but then someone's going to have to test again to not find out or find out. Actually, and yeah. I think the biggest problem with that isn't that people don't want to report it as such. Because you can report your, your results that you've got. And I, yeah, we tried this, this, this and this and it produced nothing. I've written sentences like that, where it's just a list, essentially, of things that were tested that weren't statistically significant, and the p-values that it failed to, you know, the rubbish ones. It gets cut out of review, though, no? It gets cut out of review because you're working at such tight word limits. It's like, oh, well, you know, that's a two sentences worth of, you know, that's 50 words right there. You might need 50 words for this, especially if you're working in things that have limited, really tight limits. So that I feel, although it isn't great, is perhaps more um, forgivable. It, it needs more. It's not just an author problem there. That's also a publishing problem. I think, right? Um, well, yeah. I mean, you just need more words. But then, you know, that's hard. That's a really well, hard one su- to solve. You know, because... say supplementary material or stuff like that. Yeah, but nobody reads that. I don't... It, well, the point is, if you're heading to reproduce a study, you will read that. And therefore, there should be a bit in the supplementary material that covers everything you'd need to That's reproduce fair. a study, right? Because, you, as, as you say, you don't have to have it in the main paper, but it should be accessible somewhere. Yeah, and in hard. the days of non-print stuff, it's not like we don't have enough real estate to publish that sort of supporting no, information, right? You can just tack it to the cloud and watch it float away yeah so that one well yeah I mean that's hard though yeah. to get across succinctly like you say I guess supplementary material is, is one thing but then if you're doing like a if you're doing like a review and you're reading hundreds of papers to try and quickly glean information to influence a study that you're likely to be doing you're not going to trawl through the supplementary material no no this it, it's a it's a tough one to do because there is this publication format that you have to shove things in that could make adding more information like that tougher. Mm. Anyway, I mean uh, I have very little experience. So, second one. P-hacking. You ever heard of P-hacking? Yeah, it's where you wait until someone else is going to go to the toilet and then just as they try and get in you sneak in just ahead of them and go for a pee. It's, it's close, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, would, this would be checking your statistical significance of the data you've collected. And then, is it significant? Is it not significant? Then making a decision on whether you should get some more data to see if you can get it significant or not. Uh, I mean... So that's... that's. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, again, I've got very little experience, but like, I think a lot of times if you run a test and it's nearly significant, 
then it could just be that you haven't collected enough study enough samples to do a robust test right but that should be drawn out prior yeah like the sample should the sample should infer that that's this is a little bit of the problem that you get into is you've got to almost know what a good enough sample size is to do a study but that's a question that doesn't have an answer how how big is a big enough sample that's really tough yeah it is so there's a little bit of a funny thing going on with that one but i think the point i think the point is that sample size and stuff should be defined by something else and if you have the opportunity to be getting more data then that should be done already like i think that's the tough it, it, it's getting at the point of you shouldn't be satisfied once you've found something that is statistically significant. If you would have been satisfied with a smaller sample, but it was saying something statistically significant, that means people are searching for statistical significance instead of letting the data tell them whether it's significant or not. Like There, there is a problem there with searching for things and publishing things which are only positives and no negative results it's the public not publishing of negative results again problem mm. yeah and yep. there was another one part of the p hacking where people round the p value to like 0.05 and they round it to 0.05 and they report it as being below 0.05 which to me is just i don't even understand how that's p hacking that's just wrong <laughs> that's just bad rounding <laughs> Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't understand how that was a questionable reason. How can 0.05 be less that's than That's just a lie. <laughs> Schrodinger's p-value. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, that's just stupid. So, uh, wow. Yeah, well, I mean, good points. Where did you read this? Where did I? Well, it's a, ah, it, it's a it's preprint. The, it's, it's not preprint. published in anything mm-hmm. yet. And I think that one of the reasons it is a preprint is because they want people's, obviously want people's input on this to get it. To get it working, get it right, and to everybody agree on it. And the, the P hacking, like all these things, are questionable. They are bad practice. Some of them, I feel, are, are, are being forced by external stuff. Because there's another yeah. one here called harking. You know what harking stands for? No. Hypothesizing after results known. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, again, it's one that sort of certain like yes okay you shouldn't be presenting a study as an exploratory study if you were going out to test a specific hypothesis but that being said a lot of journals want something presented as a hypothesis tested thing and it's hard to get around that if you're writing to a certain format right definitely but what isn't okay is doing all the tests seeing what the results were statistically and then going back and changing the hypothesis to be like because that's the other part of it is going back and saying that an unexpected result was suddenly expected yeah that's because that's just dishonest yeah it's difficult though isn't it because that's kind of how papers are written i mean i'm not condoning that well see yeah. this is this is exactly why they're drawing attention to it because it is an accepted um almost discipline wide potential problem occurring which if it carries on Will, relate, will lead to the same sort of uh, reproducibility problems that have been seen in other disciplines, and probably will. Mm. But there needs to be a see, you know, a change in in how these things are reported and what you're rewarded for, in at the publication end. Because let's face it, if if journals with high impact factor that help with funding only want a certain type of thing and written in a certain way, that kind of dictates what you do because <laughs> you can't get around that. Yeah. So, you know, it's tough. It's tough. But they're sort of things that I want you to bring up because it's the sort of things that people should be aware of. And it is... Because ecology and evolution have avoided this, or as far as I know, have avoided it being looked at in this way yet. And certainly I know when the stuff on psychology came out being, oh, the horrible reproducibility crisis, my first thought with ecology and evolution and things was, well, we're never going to find out if it's happening in our discipline because who the hell can repeat a study on a study species done at X time in X environment 
because it's just too fluid. It's it's really hard to reproduce studies as is. So how on earth do you test that? But yeah. finding the sort of root causes of it is a good proxy. It's really seriously crazy that um, despite the fact that what you just said is true, like it's hard to re- reproduce as an ecological study. And yet we take those things and use them in management. Exactly. That's what we're basing everything on. So we, you really need to G up the quality control as soon as you can so you don't have those problems down the line we've just torn a hole in the matrix i think we should move on <laughs> i want i just want to end in one final bit that was like a nice a nice finishing line for them where they were citing a source that showed that the portion of significant results in papers has increased in the last 25 years it's very telling yeah isn't it I mean, that is, that is a sort of natural selection of paper publication wanting significant results, is it not? It is. I mean, We talk about this all the time, yeah. though, don't we? Like the kind of need to <clears throat> publish things which are relatively high impact and then you only get that if it's a positive result. And yeah, no one just... cares about non-results. No. It's always hard to make people care about non-results. Unless the non-result is like really su- surprising, like, you know... Yeah, you well, it's a, rebuttal, that... it's a rebuttal to someone else's or something. Mm. Like if you found like... out that snakes aren't animals. Yeah, all snakes are vegetarian. Yeah. Blow that one that was eating crabs was actually trying to get at the seaweed underneath the crabs. <laughs> but it doesn't seem so good. just had a horrible good. accident. <laughs> just like... Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Crab. He thought the crab's legs were little shoots of a unusual seaweed. Kelp. Delicious kelp. Yeah, this kelp tastes like crab. <laughs> but yeah, I, I wanted to bring that up because I feel like that's a paper that when it comes out will make some serious waves. Cool. And the sooner people are aware of these little niggles. Oh, are they niggles? Like, part of me says, oh, those aren't. Some of them don't seem like as big a deal. Yeah. Well, anyway. But then some of them... Yeah, whatever. Well, we let's move on to something about this bit... all day. Yeah, okay. So, um, we don't have a species of the bi-week, or have you got one? Have you got one? No, I don't. I don't no. have another paper just to mention in one sentence. One sentence? Is that all? I can do it in... Is it more methods, or has it got no. snakes in it? No, it's not got snakes. What is it? it it's a Lawson Mara paper, Merchants of Doubt in the Free-Ranging Cat Conflict. Basically, Ooh. they're saying that the people who are anti... No, sorry, pro-free-ranging cat are using methods that are not dissimilar to those who wanted to undermine the scientific arguments for climate change and uh, tobacco use. Well, there's no surprise there, is there? It's a little just sort of uh, letter to the editor sort of thing, but it's quite a cool little thing to read. And, hey, don't use your anecdotal evidence when everything else is <laughs> saying that it's the complete opposite. That's pretty weak. So free-ranging cats kill animals. People who like cats are making out like they don't. Well, it's not It's it's not just people who like cats. That's a bit broad. I like cats. But yeah. I'm not going to say that free-ranging cats are not a problem. Because they are a problem. So, um, yeah. So who is saying it? The people who like free-ranging cats. I see, so they're kind of engaged in a war of misinformation. Yes, exactly that. That's the the, the direct comparison. They, the, the title of the paper comes from a book called Merchants of Doubt by Oreskin Conway, which is all the examples of industry and special interests and all the ways they managed to undermine the or, or manufacture doubt about the scientific consensus surrounding... Things like DDT and cigarette smoking. So it's basically saying, drawing a parallel between that and they're seeing similar methods being used by Alley Cat Allies and other organisations such as those guys. Man, people need to get a new hobby when they spend their time trying to justify wild cats. But it's in the, Well, yeah, sort of... It, it, it's that sort of like, hey, just stop doing it. But it is a debate that's happening and it needs to be something that's engaged with because if you don't engage with it, you don't see any real change. No. Well, um, I kind of did find a snake, which is new, but it's not new to science. I just hadn't heard of it before. <laughs> this species of the bi-week. This is like... An, a <laughs> Shut non- up with your cat talk. A no, no, an unofficial species of the bi-week. Like... Thank you.
as in, I just saw this photo of a snake and I was like, what is that? And I was like, it's a boid snake and I'd literally never seen or heard of it. And it's called Eric's Whitakeri, named for somebody called Whitaker. Um, Someone called Whitaker? Yeah. Um, I don't know who that could be. <laughs> Um, How, well, sorry, what's the, what's the name of this snake? I need to see a picture if we're doing Species of the Bye Week here. Oh, Whitaker. Do you know what? It might actually be named after Ron Whitaker. Well, that was the that was my sarcastic talk about who on earth could that be named after? Oh, like, oh I see. Who, what other Whitaker is it going to be named after? Well, I don't know. I mean, because usually these things have been described a long time ago. If it's a if it's a boid, but I've just looked and it's 1991. So, yeah, it could well be Ron. Uh, Romulus. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, presumably it is. Don't know. I haven't read the paper because this isn't species by week to so deal with it. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it basically it's like a super long sand boa. It looks like a python almost in its coloration. Um, what, what's, it, what's its name, man? What's its name? Common name. Yeah, yeah. anything. Uh, Whitaker's sand boa. Eric's Whitakeri. Described in 1991, just to call snakes from Southwest India. Oh, it's um, a good-looking snake. It's cool, isn't it? And basically, mm. the reason I found out about it is because um, a friend of mine lives in uh, Goa and kind of, like, rescues snakes when they uh, come across people. And, um, yeah, posted a photo of one in a bucket, and I was like, what is this? And, yeah, it's a <laughs> sand boa. So, you know, I mean, nice. they, they co-occur with uh, numerous python species. Well, yeah. Uh, Indian pythons. Indian yeah. python and do reticulated pythons get as far over as that? I don't think they do. Ooh. Uh... Google. Don't know. Tell me. Yes, reptile database using Malayo python. Right. <laughs> no, they don't. But whether or not there's other ones, I can't think off the top of my head because uh, there's definitely python malurus. Yeah, Indian python, yeah. Tell us if you know about another python that lives in India. <laughs> it's a quiz. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Oh, anyway, now it looks deliberate. Now it's a cool snake, and it's been around... It was actually described the same year I was described, so that's quite cool. Excellent. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, um... Right, well, we've been talking for over an hour, so we should probably try and wrap this up. I think that went quite well, actually. I, I hope that people found the things that I found interesting, interesting. I feel like that's going to be debatable. but <laughs> It's okay, because I talked about it was a nice snakes mix up. that eat crabs. And I mean, that's probably the highlight of all the episodes so far. Cause it's yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, and we had some, yeah no we had some snake stuff. It's all right. It's I all think right. it's good I'm to sure talk it's about. No, it's it's good to talk about these things because I yeah. saw it as an excuse for a bit of sort of meta talk of the world surrounding the things we talk about. Yeah, we'll have a quiet word afterwards. <laughs> in, a, in a lot of ways, <laughs> what we talk about, you know, we have very specific rules about what what classifies something that we talk about, and so I feel like every now and again you need to examine that, right? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like, if you get too far down the rabbit warren, you forget what the entrance look like. Yeah. Yeah, and how there's a, maybe a python sitting outside waiting for you to come out and get eaten. Or 30 baby rock pythons yeah. thermoregulating with their non-thermogenetic mother. Or a gopher tortoise. Who knows? Just waiting Ready to strike. Ready to snap up, snap up those <laughs> little, little baby pythons. Um, so, anyway, in terms of other business, um, haven't got a lot. Just to say thank you to our yes. Patreons. Uh, we've got two Massive new Patreons. Yeah, huge. Thank you very much indeed. Very generous. Uh, Jeff Henderson and Cluelli. Um, really, really kind of you both. And um, if anyone else wants to be a Patreon, uh, you can find us at Patreon. So that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash highlights uh, if you want to donate anything to the podcast. Um can also find us on twitter at herp highlights quite active on there that's both of us kind of teaming up uh we're on facebook.com slash herp highlights and you can email us at herp highlights at gmail.com such a wealth of internet delights i know it's like it's sometimes <laughs> overwhelmed. A bit overwhelming i've got so many email addresses now it's too it's almost too many yeah and my every app i have which kind of like supposed to 
amalgamate they're meant to be emails. Smart. It doesn't not. work. Yeah. It's like <laughs> it's... I can have two out of three on everything. So I've got like, yeah. it, it's extremely aggravating. But... It's a very complicated Venn diagram you have set up of email addresses with no device covering all the circles. I, yeah. I, know, I know your pain. It is a pain. And um, it's all right, though. It's okay. Yeah. You know, I shouldn't complain too much. It's nice that people want to email me, except for most of the times it's like, you signed a petition five years ago. Would you like to donate everything you own <laughs> to save this chimpanzee it's like well no if i, I could like mate if i could i would yeah i like if I had money for chimpanzees i mean there are other things i'd, I'd prioritize over chimpanzees because i feel like chimps get a lot of attention anyway like they're always featured on monkey business always no it's pretty odd because they're not monkeys yeah but they're in monkey world and also actually they are sort of monkeys accountants so that's why it's called monkey business <laughs> i'm way too pleased with that one okay let's let's wrap it up um yeah thank you very much for listening and as always if we've got anything wrong which we frequently do although we're getting corrected less and less which is a good thing but i think maybe it's because our regular correctors have maybe not been listening or have a backlog to catch up with (laughs) they're getting busier and busier yeah because it always like we've got a few people more and more esoteric mistakes (laughs) yeah like scott ipper comes along and has like a a ream so scott we're waiting to hear from you Um, yeah no, that's excellent. Always like being corrected, to be fair, because yeah. that's what we're, we're trying to put out real, relatively truthful stuff, right? Mm. That's, as far as that's we the can goal of peer it. review. <sighs> yeah. yeah, cool. Well, good um, stuff. Thanks yeah. for listening. Yeah, folks. thanks a lot. Have a good <laughs> whatever day it is tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it could be any day. <laughs> they don't have to listen to this when we speak it. It's marvels of the internet. It's, it's, incredible yeah happy Thursday (laughs) maybe (laughs) thanks for listening thanks for listening We still have an opportunity to change it. Yeah, I know, yeah, we, we should it's change it. It's not too late. But... Use niche. I don't... I, uh, it, yeah, it's just super lame. <laughs> that's, what, that's why I love it. It's so bad. <laughs> it's so awful. It clearly tickles it just, you, so maybe we should just leave it. <laughs> it does, but in the sort of worst possible way. It kind of, it kind of angers me. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it just skirts that line. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Right. Uh, oh, we'll think of something different. We yeah, will. I think we should. I think that's best. <laughs>